This week on Writers Inc. As writers and, and readers and, and lovers of you know of literature, um, we often put the very act of storytelling on a pedestal and sort of see it as this unexamined good um, that that telling a story is in and of itself a noble calling. And I think that throughout history, we can find all kinds of examples where the very act of, of telling a story, you know, can be very demeaning and can be um, very uh, counterproductive to the, you know, the, the, the very ambitions that that many artists have. And so in, in this book, I became interested in how um, Hollywood uh, during the war years used this, you know, incredible machine of, of storytelling to in some ways um, tell tell stories that are profoundly dangerous and, um, you know, shameful. Um, just looking at the propaganda apparatus that emerged during this period was a way of, of trying to, to examine how storytelling can be used for ill ends as much as, as noble ones. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Well, I took a little flack for teasing last week, so I figured uh, there's no point withholding anymore. Welcome, Christine. Hello. Thank you for having <laughs> me. I'm so excited to be here. Our newest member of the team, not, not a guest, a co-host, Christine Degla. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I'm a writer. I've known Jay for quite a while. Years. Uh, years, yeah. So um, I have sorry. a traditionally published <laughs> book with a co-author and, you know, I've been kind of shooting down that path, but more editing other people's books than uh, doing my own. But yeah, I was in your community and uh, you got me started on this serial fiction thing. So that's where I have been for the last year and a half is heavy into that. And it's been a lot of fun. All right. So I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Um, all right. So you, you've known Jay for a long time. You actually listen to him and take advice and you continue know. to know him purposely. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> like you're, you're not being, there's no court order, nothing like that. You actually you know, talk to the guy. I do. I do. Huh. And yeah, he's, he um, convinced me to start my last podcast. I don't know if convinced. I asked you if it was a good idea. Um, and I was doing a serial fiction podcast before coming over here. So happy to be here. Nice. Well, welcome aboard. Thank you. Yeah, we're pretty excited. Uh, you're going to be transitioning into the interview spot. Uh, and uh, starting this week you, you, is, is your first interview. So we'll talk about that. And then um, there'll be a little transitionary period where from week to week it might be you or might be me. And then eventually you're going to take on that responsibility uh, um, all on your own. So we're really excited about that. We're thrilled to have you bring some new energy. And uh, I was going to say something about bringing the feminine energy, but you're like, I don't have any. <laughs> I so. don't have any. <laughs> I was going to wear my Slayer shirt, but last time I wore that, you told me it was a lot. So I skipped that today. <laughs> and then we all wore black anyway. <laughs> uh, well, uh, excellent. It's great. It's great to have you with us, Christine. Thanks. What do we got going on, man? We got, we got some, we got some things happening this week in the publishing industry, don't we? We, we do. So I, 
I'm guessing everybody's probably heard this at this point, but um, a judge blocked the merger between Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster, um, which which is big. Um, you know, we don't have to go into all the details on this. You know, King even went out there and testified, and along with a number of other authors. You know, the, the gist of it is, and you know, the general feeling of, uh, in the author community is, if this kind of merger takes place, it's going to be less competition, which means smaller advances. You know, less opportunity. And it, you know, in, in my case, I'm traditionally published. It's, it's one less name that my agent can submit to, um, and that list is getting smaller and smaller. And we touched on this last week. You know, I've got books with um, HMH, or they were with HMH. HMH got bought out by Harper Collins, um, and you know, one of the promises made at that point is we're not going to be rolling, cutting back the staff. You know, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. And then meanwhile, a week or two ago, they trimmed back on staff. Um, you know, so not only is the, the publishing industry shrink, shrinking, but like the, the employee base is shrinking. These people are, are getting put out on the street. Um, so yeah, a lot of people are very glad that this isn't happening. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen in some other some other way. Um, who knows where it's all going? You know, they're, you know I'm sure they're going to appeal this or try to. Uh, but we'll see. I wanted to ask you a quick follow up to that. Like I, I don't understand. This is this is to a level of business and industry that I clearly don't understand. But I'm wondering, like, is this is this like a line in the sand? Is this going to kind of stop any sort of potential future possible mergers, or is this just a temporary setback? And and these behemoth businesses are just going to find a way to do what they want to do anyways. I, I honestly think because um, you know they've allowed other companies to merge. You know, so like this is the first time they're not allowing it to happen. Um, and that's the part of it I think that's actually going to get challenged. And I, I think what they're going to end up doing, you're going to see Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster lean heavily on Amazon. You know, we've got this disruptor over here coming in from left field. This is not like the rest of us. You know, we need to be able to compete, we being the traditional publishers, against this new model. Um, and it's a very similar argument that uh, Sirius and XM Radio made back when they merged, you know, the, the two satellite radio companies that were out there. You know, that a lot of people tried to, to stop that one, too, including the Justice Department, um, because, you know, it would have left basically one satellite radio company, which is what we had today. But their argument in order to put that through was we're not competing against each other. We're competing against terrestrial radio. We're competing against downloadable this, downloadable that, podcasts, the, all these other things. Um, so I, I think the lawyers are going to lock themselves in a conference room, get the whiteboard out, and they're, they're going to spitball some new ways to get around this. Do you think that um, this could have any impact on um, <clears throat> more uh, traditionally published authors who are you know, worried about what might happen with their books and all this stuff with these different companies like possibly merging? Do you think that it could, uh, that more authors could be looking at different avenues to publish, like possibly keeping their rights in self-publishing or anything like that? Or do you think it won't have any sort of impact like that? No, those conversations were happening before this merger even showed up on the on the radar. Um, you know, it's it's a weird thing if you've got a book with a publisher, and you know, a merger like this happens, or your editor leaves, or or whatever, your book basically ends up in limbo. Um, so, you know, an editor pays for your book over at ABC Publishing. That editor gets cut. Everything that was on their their desk that they were working on either has to go to a new editor that's willing to champion and continue it along the process, or it just disappears. The problem with that is if it just disappears after you've already signed a contract. They still own those rights to put it out. Um, so unless your contract has something specific in it that says they have to publish within, you know, within one year or X number of months or whatever, your book could sit there, uh, you know, unpublished at that publisher for, you know, years, possibly indefinitely, depending on your, your contract. So a lot of that comes down to the wording. Uh, but every time one of these mergers happen, I mean, that's basically the biggest fear on the traditional side. You know, I've got these two books over here. My, my editor may be gone. You know, the book is scheduled to release eight months from now. Like what's going to happen in, in those eight months? Um, and a lot, I think a lot of that uncertainty 
uncertainty is is what drives traditionally published authors towards the indie market because you don't have those uncertainties. It, it all falls on you. You know, when your book comes out, how it's edited, all those fun things, they they land on your shoulders, which is a lot more work. But at the same time, you've got total control. So I think a lot of people are are looking at that, and and more people are deciding that it may be worth taking on those additional headaches. Be interesting to see how this all plays out. Um, I think we had a few other news stories and some tidbits you guys were talking about, right, Zach? Didn't you say there was some Amazon stuff you wanted yeah, to mention? Yeah, it's really small. I mean, I don't even know if I would call this news, but um, I don't know if you guys uh, have looked at your Amazon book pages this week and noticed a couple of changes on there. But um, uh, two, two things I noticed. For one, they have started experimenting with putting uh, Goodreads ratings oh. on your page. <laughs> Yep. Um, which some authors have freaked out about. <laughs> um, I've seen in Jay's community specifically, uh, you know, because uh, you're on Goodreads, usually your score, your rating is typically lower than it is on Amazon. Um, people over on Goodreads tend to be a little bit more, uh, you know, I, I don't know. They, I, I guess the way to put it is they typically like rate things a little bit lower than, than people do on Amazon. Uh, but it's right there next to your reviews. Like I'm looking at my book right now and it says, you know, uh, 4.0 on Goodreads with 513 ratings. So, well, I mean, I, I, I saw this too and I actually have it in my notes. Um, I, I wasn't sure if it happened like six months ago and I just noticed it, but I'm glad you're, <laughs> you're bringing it up and it actually is a new thing. Um, I, I think what honestly happens, you know, like it's difficult to put a review up on Amazon, you know, like it, yeah. people are lazy, you know, so to put up a review, review on Amazon, you've got to actually go to a website, you know, load it up on your phone or whatever. And you've actually got to find that, you know, that book and you've got to post your review. You've got to go through all these hoops. You got to be you finish, in, you got to, yeah, all that you know, stuff, like right? nobody wants to do all that because you know, we're lazy. Um, on Goodreads, you know, like you finish a book on your Kindle or whatever, it takes you directly to a, a, a nag screen that more or less forces you to put a review up on, you know, if you want to move forward, unless you start clicking all these X's to try and make it go away. It's, it's, it's easier to put a review up than it is to make those nag boxes go away. Um, so I think they tend to get more reviews. So I think the reason that Amazon reviews are better is because somebody's got to be motivated to go out there and post a review. Yeah. I really like this book. I want to talk about it. So then they head over to Amazon and they jump through those extra hoops to make it happen. On the Goodreads, side, it's more of an afterthought. You know, I just need to get the review done so I can move on and do this. Um, so that's why they, they garner so many of them. Um, but I'm guessing that this is a precursor. I think we're going to see those reviews start to appear on the Amazon site, you know, probably mixed in with the Amazon reviews. Um, and honestly, I'm not sure why they're not all you know, bulk together at this point anyway. I mean, Amazon has owned Goodreads forever. You know, it, it really should be like they should pick one platform and, and just go with it. But I, I, I'm kind of glad. I, my Goodreads reviews are, are strong, so <laughs> I'm, I'm happy about yeah. it. But, yeah, a lot, a lot of authors have been kind of freaking out, but it's one of those things. It's like it is what it is. But uh, yeah, the, and the other thing I noticed was, um, Ken, uh, and this is more, I guess, on the consumer side, but um, they also launched a Kindle rewards program. So uh, people can now earn uh, points when they buy books on Kindle. Um, it's kind of interesting. Like, you, well, not I shouldn't just say on Kindle. It's also on paperback. So uh, you get five points for every dollar spent on Kindle and two dollars on print books. So clearly, again, they're trying to push people towards um, buying digital books, and you get a three dollar credit for every three hundred points. So this clearly goes to a lot of people who buy a lot of books. What I kind of found interesting was um, like, I, I kind of, this is rewarding people who buy books, but what about Kindle unlimited subscribers? Mm -hmm. That's what I really thought about because 
Um, I mean, those, those are, you know, in my opinion, probably Amazon's top reading customers. And I don't think that they're necessarily getting rewarded through this. Maybe they don't care because they're reading as much as they want for $10 a month. But I just kind of found that aspect of it a little interesting. But, uh, yeah. and I, I've, I've like, again, uh, I've seen some authors come out and uh, initially like panic, like, oh, are they going to take the discount away from our books? I don't think it's anything like that. I think. Anytime someone uses a credit, you still, I mean, cause Amazon does credits now and you on, on stuff. Like I get emails all the time and I'm pretty sure the authors are still getting a hundred percent of the, the same royalty they would get. Um, so I don't think it, this is really nothing anyone needs to worry about. I don't think, I just think it's a cool, uh, little perk for people who do buy books on Kindle. Yeah. I'm one of those Kindle people. I, I buy a lot of books on Kindle. So I actually qualified for the beta and I got it and they have a punch card and you can get extra bonuses. But I think it's interesting what you just said about KU, because I got in my email um, from Kindlepreneur, they have new data coming out on books in different categories, looking at large publishers versus KU, which is the first time. And they said actually that for every book purchase on Kindle, nine are accessed in KU. So I thought that was an interesting statistic. And there's a whole article up there. You can go read it. They've got lots more data coming out. It was kind of cool. I'd be interested to see a comparison between KU and, and Prime Reading. Like if you guys noted, like if you're a Prime member, you know they've got a bunch of books that are available to you for free, and and that number is increasing. And I, I've had my books in there. I'm still not sure if I get paid from that. Like the messaging they get is so convoluted. Yeah, same um, here. Yeah. So, it, but but they're there. You know, like and, and it makes me wonder. You know, like as a Prime user, like I love Prime, and we I mean, Amazon's been here twice today, dropping crap off, and I, I I order so much, I don't even know what's in those particular boxes. Like they're just sitting out there. Um, um, but the fact that I can get free books now through that, you know, like it makes me wonder how many people are going to shuffle over from KU to maybe Prime and then maybe authors, if they're not getting paid on you know, a comparative level, like we may get hurt there. There's some initiative with Prime because I don't know if you guys noticed uh, on the music side, uh, they That's added awesome. like 80 million songs to, to the Prime library. Yeah. I think it went from like, you know, 20 million to 100 million available songs for streaming for Prime members. So I think they're... Uh, they're doubling down on Prime, and it looks like they're they have a multi-pronged approach here. Well, I think somebody walked into their marketing meeting and said, "Hey, have you guys heard of the Spotify company? They might be a problem." <laughs> and and I think it's stemming from a lot of that. Um, and just to touch on something that Zach just said, I, I've had emails go out to um, you know from Amazon before, you know, get five dollars off of a JD Barker book using this coupon code or link or whatever they include in that. Um, it doesn't impact my sales in any way. So I'm I'm guessing Amazon is just footing that bill out of their own pocket. It, it's not coming from the publisher either. I would have heard about it from from that standpoint. Um, but they do they do a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's really no different than you know if a store puts uh, something on sale like the the company doesn't eat that <laughs> like whoever, yeah. you know, the, the, who are like, you know, the t-shirt company or whatever it's the, the retailer eats that cost. So it's, that's not anything for, uh, for people to worry about. If anything, like I said, it's just going to encourage people to buy more books, hopefully, you know, um, and, and get their, get their points and, and earn credits. So to me, that's like a win-win thing all around. And, and hopefully I can go on Amazon Prime Music now and listen to that new record by Nagbox, which is one of my, they're one of my favorite <laughs> new bands. So <laughs> Now you're gonna listen to you too. <laughs> no, that's Zach. That's Zach's band, not mine. Don't get don't get me started on YouTube. <laughs> Zach's going to see Bono uh, live. Yeah, he's Nashville. doing a speaking thing at the Ryman here in a, in a little bit, and I was like, I sent it to Jay yesterday, and he's being real strict about like no, like you have to put your phone in one of those baggies and stuff when you go in. I was like, dude, you could come speak in my backyard, and I wouldn't go. 
so you don't have to worry about my phone. <laughs> well, there goes the you, there goes the Bono interview on Writers Inc. I'm <laughs> 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 sorry. <laughs> you guys can have Jeff edit that one out if you want. So. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. Well, uh, let's take care of some business, and then we'll get to the interview here. I want to give a shout out to our friends over there at wordandpixel.com. If you love our new spiffy new website, make sure, uh, and, and you need one, make sure you check out wordandpixel.com. Also, our friends at Kobo Writing Life, they're always our, uh, our favorite, favorite people. If you want to uh, take your career into your own hands, you're going to go wide, you're going to publish your books in any country, then you got to go with Kobo. Uh, they, you can set your price, keep all your rights and you get monthly promotional opportunities. So there's a link in the show notes, or you can go there directly by going to KoboWritingLife.com. JD, who is up on the interview seat this week? This week, we've got New York Times bestseller Anthony Mara. His latest book, it's called Mercury Pictures Presents, uh, which is a, it's a fascinating look at 1940s Hollywood. Uh, so here he is, Anthony Mara. So as we're recording, it's a few days before Halloween, and I want to hear about Rusty, your cat, and his chicken costume. <laughs> Will Rusty be dressing up this year? You know, I, I, we will likely try, but uh, I, I think he, he may have uh, learned, uh, learned his lesson. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so we have um, for for listeners who are unaware of the details of uh, of of my cat's, uh, uh, you know. Uh, various uh, costumes. He he has a, a number of costumes. We, we dress him up for Christmas. He is this 15 pound, very fluffy Siberian cat, and he hates us uh, uh, tremendously for the, <laughs> uh, the the traumas inflicted on him by uh, his various costumes. But 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 the 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 creme de la creme of his costumes is he has this this chicken hat, um, which uh, yeah, which which looks about as amazing as it sounds. Yeah, I love it so much, even if Rusty does not. But as much as I could talk about cats, you have a new book, Mercury Pictures Presents. I just really love the opening with Maria looking at that mini replica of herself inside the scale model of the movie studio. You know, she's featureless and tiny. And then it moves right into a bird unloading on her car, her boss's car, and she's cheering him on. It was just a great immediate setup for the tone of that novel you know, how life can be a screwball comedy that's both heartbreaking and funny. Can you tell us a bit more about Mercury Pictures Presents? Yeah, so I I, I began working on this book um, in 2014. Um, uh, there's this wonderful quote by uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, who, who supposedly said that, that if you tip the world on its side, all the loose pieces will land in Los Angeles. And this was never more true than it was in the 1930s and 40s when thousands of refugees fleeing the war in Europe landed in LA. Um, and many of them ended up working uh, sort of at the margins of, of Hollywood. Um, and this is, is uh, a novel sort of about that community. And, and I, I was really interested in exploring it through the eyes of the central character, Maria Lagana, who fled from fascist Italy as a child with her mother and sort of ascends the ranks um, uh, of this this B movie studio, Mercury Pictures. Um, she uh, she's this just this fantastic character. Um, I really I really loved writing her. I, I sort of imagined her um, as Rosalind Russell's character in His Girl Friday, only a bit more salty and a lot more Italian. 
Um, and the the image that 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 you mentioned um, that the book starts on this this miniature of the studio itself um, sort of became the way that that I imagined um, the novel as a whole. Um, I was interested in in looking at this you know this this uh, big sort of studio on the decline and sort of wanted to see if by capturing all of these different lives and these different stories of immigrants and, and exiles who came to work there, if, if I could say uh, something larger about the time period and about the humanity of this particular place. Yeah, I love that. And the title of the first section of your book and one of the original working titles was Sunny Siberia. Do you want to get a bit more into where that term came from and why it spoke to you? Yeah, so it's it was a term that some uh, some refugees and exiles from Europe used to describe Los Angeles. Um, and uh, beyond it just being pretty funny, it, it, it spoke to me because it was kind of the idea that connects the two major uh, the two major threads in the novel. One about half of the novel is set in, in Los Angeles and half of the novel is set in Italy where Maria's father has been sentenced to internal exile. And I should say that for the, the first couple of, of uh, maybe the first year or so that I spent working on the book, I, I didn't actually see it as one book. I saw them as two books. I, I was uh, sort of juggling between an idea uh, uh, of, of a novel set in the golden age of Hollywood and another potential novel set in, in Italy. And I was going back and forth, sort of ping-ponging between the two, unable to really uh, settle on, on either book. And things finally came together um, when my wife and I took a vacation to the island of Lipari. And this is a tiny volcanic island off the coast of Sicily. It's where my uh, great-grandmother's family emigrated from. And while we were there, we found this little plaque that uh, commemorated the various anti-fascists and artists and uh, intellectuals who had been sentenced to internal exile by Mussolini's regime and and uh, essentially shipped off to this this island, and it seemed so surreal that this island paradise to which I could trace my own roots had once been Mussolini's Alcatraz, and in fact this island was the largest um, sort of uh, internment colony um, in in Italy under under Mussolini. And I remember, um, you know, standing there and, and and seeing this sign and looking out at this like absolutely gorgeous, you know, um, island vista, and thinking of that term "sunny Siberia" that um, German and Austrian um, uh, exiles used to describe Los Angeles, and, and thought it was a, a term that perhaps some of these um, Italian um, uh, these Italian prisoners might have used to describe, um, you know, the island of of Liberi. And that was the moment when I thought maybe these aren't two separate books, but rather halves of the same book. And, and the story would be about this family divided between these two sunny Siberias on either, either end of the world. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, your process for getting this book together. So you said you started it in 2014, and I heard it was a bit of a struggle to get your teeth into it. You even thought about taking the LSATs. It was so bad. 
I know. Well, I, so I said that, I said that as a joke in a previous interview of, and I, I think the, the interviewer took, uh, perhaps took me to that a little serious. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was not ever actually seriously considering BLSAT. No, you were going to go off and do that. So, um, you're struggling a little bit with this book and then the pandemic hits and you said your wife was sort of your accountability partner. She's staring at you from her workspace. And I believe you also had, um, some writing dates with Celeste Ng for accountability. Mm-hmm. How important do you think accountability is for authors? And are there some types of accountability you feel would be helpful? Yeah, it's a great question. So I my, my first two books, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena and The Zara of Love and Techno, both, um, both took me around two years to write. And so when I began working on this in 2014, I figured I'd be finished while Obama was still in office. Um, and, you know, obviously that didn't quite happen. Um, uh, it was a couple of years, a uh, couple of years overdue. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, every book is, is different. And um, I think that kind of no work is wasted. So, so this one took, it, it did took me, uh, it, it did take me much longer than I had anticipated um, to write, but in part it's because I just found the world of, of the novel um, so endlessly fascinating. And, and there was just so much I wanted to put in the book. There was so much research I was doing. Um, so so the I, 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 at no point did I have writer's block. It was, it was, it was quite the opposite. I, I had, um, you know, I had written too much and, and there was um, just, just such a, a, a sprawl of story of, of sort of these incredible set pieces um, just this this fascinating history that I wanted to um, to shoehorn into the book, and so the the process of of writing the book was in in many ways trying to um, narrow the the scope, and it, you know it still has quite a large scope, but but to narrow what I could fit into the the book um, in terms of like of the idea of accountability, I I think that. Um, I think that accountability is is important in in all things in life, and and certainly um, I think it can be useful in in the creative process. Um, one thing that I used to do was um, I would keep a uh, a log, sort of like a, a ledger of how many words I had written every day, and um, uh, it was usually I was hoping to do around a thousand words, and if I did a thousand words or more, I would mark it down, mark down the number in black ink. And if it was below a thousand words, I would mark down the number in red ink. And there was something about just, you know, over, over, you know, weeks and months becoming so um, just uh, uh, ashamed of seeing, um, of seeing red ink on, on my ledger that, 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 that kind of became the, the thing that would push me to, um, you know, write a little a little bit more, um, you know, if I was feeling sluggish. Um, uh, when when working on this book, uh, I, I did. I, I met up with Celesting um, uh, once a week. Um, she was working on Our Missing Hearts, and I was working on this, and, and so we were both in the midst of our third draft, and just having um, you know uh, a, a regular check in with with a fellow writer um, was incredibly um, incredibly useful, and. Um, you know, writing in many ways is kind of a lonely activity or, um, you know, you spend years working on a project that nobody else, you know, 
nobody else has read. You don't really know if if what you're working on will mean anything to anybody but you. Um, and so having you know just uh, an, another another person who understands the 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 struggle and the um, you know and and all of the the disappointment and uh, anxiety and and joy in that process is is uh, enormously helpful. I love everything about that. I love the ledger. Nobody wants to be in the red. And yeah, other writers, you know, you need other writers to know what you're going through. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, I, I think that it's the case with writing, but also I, I think the case in, in life in general, it's, it's, you kind of want to uh, find ways of, of using your, your anxiety or your shame or whatever it is to your advantage. And, and I found the, the red ink on the ledger, a way of, of harnessing, uh, harnessing those, those feelings of guilt and, um, and, and putting them to, you know, a useful purpose. I love that so much. Um, so you previously said that one of the questions you had in mind while writing this novel was how does storytelling redeem and uplift and make us whole? And how does it break us? Did this idea come from your years of persevering on this novel as sort of a guiding light or did it come from somewhere else? I think that that it's kind of one of the main through lines in, in all of my work. My my previous two um two books were set in the former Soviet Union. And um one of the things that that those two books, Constellation and the Tsar of Love and Techno, were um interested in is the way that history becomes manipulated, the, the way that history um becomes fictionalized. Um, and used to um, further the ends of political actors in in the present day, and I think that um, you know that as as writers we often um, as writers and, and readers and and lovers of you know of literature um, we often put the very act of storytelling on a pedestal and sort of see it as um, as this this unexamined good um, that that telling a story is in and of itself a noble calling. And I think that throughout history, we can find all kinds of examples where the very act of, of telling a story um, uh, is, you know, can be very demeaning and can be um, very uh, uh, counterproductive to the, you know, the, the, the very ambitions that, that many artists have. And so in, in this book, I became interested in how um, Hollywood uh, during the war years, used this you know incredible machine of of storytelling to, in some ways, um, tell tell stories that are profoundly dangerous and um, and uh, you know shameful. Um, just looking at the propaganda apparatus that emerged during this period um, was a way of of trying to to examine how storytelling um, can be used for ill ends as much as as noble ones. Yeah, I love that. And that is um, a theme that seems evergreen, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where I, I think that um, that historical fiction uh, describes the period in which it's written as much as the period in which it's set. And I think that certainly a lot of the ideas that the that this book wrestles with in terms of, um, you know, misinformation and propaganda um, are sadly, as you said, evergreen and um, evergreener, it seems. It does seem that way. Yeah. So this book is set in World War II area Hollywood. And you touched a little bit on, you know, your ancestry and your travels. I'd like to hear more about 
how your life in California and your Italian ancestry influenced this novel. Yeah, so I I spent about 13 years in in California. I lived uh, both in in Los Angeles and in uh, the the Bay Area. Um, my uh, Cappy, my 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 partner is is from Los Angeles, from from Long Beach, um, and um, this 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 period of of LA history just always really appealed to me in terms of this moment of of cultural transfusion where tens of thousands of emigres from Europe arrived. Um, but as as you as you mentioned, I was also really interested in in writing about um, about my family in in some ways, and and I, I think that um, it comes out most perhaps in Maria's great aunts. So when when Maria um, emigrates um, to to the United States, she and her mother move into a house with with her great aunts. Um, she has these three great aunts, Mimi, Lala, and Pep. And uh, her her great aunts are um, are these boisterous, very cynical, um, very, you know, darkly humorous um, characters. They, you know, they never crack a smile, um, but they'll make you laugh. Um, and I um, I base them on my own great aunts who are, are named Mimi, Lala, and Pep. Um, uh, and and they are very sort of true to uh, the personalities of of my own aunts. My um, my grandfather had um, uh, nine siblings, nine siblings, eight siblings, nine siblings. I, I can't remember. And um, uh, over half of them died in childhood. And uh, when a, a one one of the siblings died, their name would be passed on to the next in line. So my grandfather and my great aunts all received their names from. Um, from older siblings who had passed away, and of this, um, you know, of this 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 generation um, that came from a time and a place uh, where within this family there was a fifty percent mortality child mortality rate. Um, my my three great aunts, Mimi, Lala, and Pep, lived to their late nineties, and I remember just um, as a kid just seeing them as these um, as these you know they were. I'm sure not one of them cracked five feet um, in, in height, but they were just these these giants. They had you know survived so much and had seen so much, and um, somehow you know uh, lived um, uh, and lived and lived and lived. Um, even though you know I think they were ready to to cash in their chips, um, you know, uh, well before I was born. And um, I, I remember uh, my the, the last of my great aunts, Mimi. Um, passed away when um, at the age of, of 98 or 99 um, as I was writing this book and I, I I had already decided that you know I was gonna I was gonna have these three ends based uh, based on my own um, in uh, in Maria's family and I, I I hadn't named them yet and and when Mimi passed away I realized you know of course just as my three great aunts received their their names from um, Older sisters who had departed, um, Maria's great aunts would receive um, would receive their names from from my own now that they had um, now that they had passed away. Yeah, I love that, and she was quite a character. But I don't want to spoil too much. Were there actually any uh, funeral directors uh, married into your family, or not so much? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there were none. So, so in 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 the novel, um, Maria's uh, great aunt Mimi um, uh, meets this uh, sort of uh, she 
her her great one of her great joys uh, is is planning her own funeral, and she falls in love with the funeral director, um, and they have this sort of uh, December December romance. Um, and uh, uh, th th that I, I took some liberties with that. There, there were no funeral directors. <laughs> that was delightful. I loved every minute of that. Um, so you talked a little bit about your travels to Italy. Did you travel to Germany as well? For this I time? did. I, I spent about four months in in Berlin, and um, uh, there are uh, there, there's one character in particular, um, Anna, who is a, a Berlin miniaturist, and and she is the um, is the person who uh, builds the scale model miniature that opens the book, and her talents as a miniaturist um, and and model builder later. Um, get her hired by the U.S. Army to build a um, life-size replica of the Berlin neighborhood in the Utah desert, which was um, something that actually uh, uh, occurred during the war. It was a um, this sort of very strange um, collaboration between the U.S. military, Standard Oil, and, and Hollywood, in which um, a series of Berlin tenement buildings were, were constructed in the U.S., excuse me, in, in the, the Utah desert. Um, and they were constructed with this really extraordinary degree of, of fidelity. Um, the <clears throat> All of the furnishings were um, were purchased secondhand from German um, uh, from sec from consignment stores in German um, American neighborhoods. Um, the the uh, wooden frames of the buildings were actually uh, shipped from Murmansk in in Russia because the timber they had there resembled the timber used in Berlin. Um, Berlin tenement buildings. At night, fire firemen would come around and douse the uh, the the tenement buildings um, in in water. Not because there were any fires, but because they wanted to ensure that the wooden frames had the the same humidity levels that you would find in in Berlin. And um, the question, of course, is why go to all of this um, expense and and effort to build these. Um, these really, you know, staggeringly precise um, replicas of Berlin tenements, and the answer is that the, the U.S. military was trying to um, trying to figure out how um, they could start a firestorm, and so they would build these these tenements in Utah and then bomb them and then rebuild them and bomb them again and over and over. And um, and as I said, this was was something that, um, you know, that that actually happened and that many um, uh, emigre and refugee architects were involved in. And there seems something, you know, both so, um, so, so powerful and, and sad and, and terrible about, um, you know, uh, about that, um, about that endeavor, but also something so um, kind of moving in, in the idea that um, you know these these exiles, many of whom deeply, deeply missed um, you know the the Germany of the 1920s. Um, uh, the idea that the only place that they could return to Berlin was in the Utah desert, and and the price for that was to be um, you know to collaborate in the real Berlin's destruction. Yeah, that's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, an interesting piece of history, though, and yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. The book was so full of of real life um, experiences. I believe also 
including your cousins, Trattoria in San Francisco. Does that make an appearance in the book? It does, yeah. So, so it's it's um, uh, Trattoria Contadina, which is um, uh, hands down my favorite um, restaurant on earth. Um, if you're in the Bay Area at all, um, please consider visiting it. It's in North Beach. It's been um, it's been around for uh, three generations, and um, yeah, and and um, sort of similarly to my to my aunts, I, I had a lot of fun. Um, uh, sort of including little little aspects of my own family's history in in this book. It's um, uh, it, it was sort of a, a bit of an Easter egg hunt for uh, for my family, and you know I'd get as various people were reading it, I'd get texts and phone calls, you know, when they recognized this, that, or the other. That's wonderful, and I loved all of that depth in the book. Um, also, you talk about watching a lot of films to help nail down this story. Were there any particular films you want to highlight that were a big influence on this novel? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons it, it took it took me so long to write this book is because when you're, um, you know, when you're writing something set in um, in Hollywood of this time period, you can sit around watching a bunch of old movies and call it call it work. Um, I'm hard at work here, I swear. Um, and some of the movies that, um, you know, that, that were most important, as I said earlier, um, is Girl Friday. Um, I, I really love, um, just sort of the, the rat-a-tat of screwball comedies, the way that, that screwball comedies, um, elevate dialogue into this, this sort of wonderful, um, this wonderful sort of combative, um, expressive, uh, uh, medium. Um, the, yeah, the, the, that was a movie that was, that was very influential. I, I, I would also say, um, the, the work of a director named Ernst Lubitsch, who, um, has sort of faded in popularity a, a, a little bit, I, I, I think in, you know, over the, the past couple of decades, but in the, in the twenties and thirties, he was one of the most, um, well-known, directors in in Hollywood he was um he immigrated from uh from Germany in the early 20s and um did a, a series of, of what were known as champagne comedies and he was um a figure who was who's now perhaps best known uh, for the influence that he had on the director Billy Wilder Billy Wilder had a, a plaque over his desk that um that read how would Lubitsch do it um and that was sort of his his mantra and and his guiding light, and he had um, uh, two movies in particular, um, uh, Ninochka and To Be or Not to Be, and they're both um, uh, fantastically funny, but they're 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 also movies um, that that use satire to um, to make really um, really important political points. Um, uh, Ninochka sort of takes on um, Stalinism and to be or not to be takes on um, the Nazi occupation of Poland. And and they're both um, just incredibly well-written, incredibly funny, but also deadly serious. Um, and and finally, I would I would say um, Casablanca. Um, Casablanca is, is a movie that in some ways I think best exemplifies the uh, the influence and the um, legacy of um, of European emigrants working in Hollywood during World War II. Um, Casablanca, I believe there were um, 36 different nationalities represented on the set of Casablanca. 
it's a movie, um, you know, by um, and about uh, refugees. And one of the most extraordinary things about it, I think, is that um, the, this is a movie about people who, um, you know, who are trying to get to America and and who are are unable to, and yet um, both during the war and in the years uh, following, I think it's become a, a a movie that that more or less exemplifies what we um, how Americans want to see themselves. Um, I think it, it it has sort of become one of the most powerful um, articulations of um, American aspiration. Yeah, and I definitely think that you nailed that in your novel. It 100% felt like it had a screwball comedy feel to me. And it's just, um, you know, sometimes the heaviest material is best conveyed with humor. And you did such a wonderful job of that. I just want to wrap up with one final question as we're coming to a close, and I hope it's a fun one. So publishing has changed a lot over the last few years. What are you most excited about in the near future? Oh, that's a great uh, uh, a, a great question. I, I guess I'm um, so, sort of most in, in, in what am I most excited about in terms of 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 like the the publishing landscape, publishing or your future in publishing new projects. Take it any way you like. All right. Well, I would say um, I would say in terms of the broader publishing landscape. I am most excited about the fact that I think we're, we're uh, more and more international books are being translated. I think that for many years, um, you know, uh, so it was. I think the the usual statistic is one or two percent of of books published by big American presses have been um, works in translation, and and I think that um, that we're seeing um, you know we're seeing that tick up a bit, and um, I think that that's just really exciting you know to me as as a reader, not as a writer. I I I love um, reading books that um, are imported from abroad and and that sort of allow you to. Um, you know, to to leave the the known world of your of your daily life. Um, so I find that tremendously exciting. And I, I, I guess in, in terms of of my own work, I'm I'm excited to just um, uh, continue continue writing. Um, I I I, I, I um, you know I haven't um, I haven't really sunk my teeth into a new project yet, but um, but I, I am looking forward to to doing so. And and I promise it will not take. Uh, seven years. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been a treat. So what did you guys think? Anthony Mara? <laughs> well, my, my first thought is it's kind of refreshing to hear like a professional interview after you know, a year and a half or two years <laughs> slog, slogging through. and The nag you know, box like the, returns. Yeah, the amateur hour that of Jay Thorne doing this. So kudos. Thank you for doing that. That was that was great. Um, for me personally, like it's impossible to talk about anything related to Italy without getting hungry. Like I like if you've ever been to Italy, like, you know, every meal is insanely good and it's like five hours long. Um, so like any mention of Italy just makes me think food. Um, the two books becoming one, like that kind of jumped out at me. It's, it's something I personally love to do, but like I set out to do that from the get go, you know, like I come up with two separate storylines and I, I write them together and I weave them together and in the end they ultimately come together. Um, so I've never written like, you know, two different books and then decided that these need to be part of the same story. Have you guys ever done anything like that? No, no. I haven't. No, me, me, me either. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I he was like, called it what the opposite of writer's block, just narrowing down, and and that's just such the opposite of my experience. I 
because I'm usually an underwriter, but JD, you've probably narrowed and focused in and books like that. Well, it's basically, it's a trick that you use to drive the story forward. Um, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be two totally separate stories. That's what he did here. Um, but like if I find that a particular part of a story is moving too slow from a pacing standpoint, you know, I'll, I'll create a B story and, and weave those together. Um, you know, and that can be done in a lot of different ways. It could be two totally separate storylines like what he did. Um, I've done, done the, the then and now thing, you know, like present and past tense, um, and, and brought those two together. Um, and forsaken, I, I had, a, a diary that was written in the, the 1600s and I weave that in together with the, the modern tale that was going on. Um, but you know, for me anyway, the, the important part when you do that is just make sure that it all, you know, plays a part. And, you know, in my case, they always come together at the end The one story feeds the other. Um, and then in the climax of the book, you, you need to know both of them in order for it all to, to make sense. Um, so it can't just be this, you know, my, my novel is 40,000 words. I've got this other one over here. That's 30,000. Maybe if I change the names, I can stick them both together like that. That's not going to work. It's got to be done with purpose. Well, you know, related, uh, and, and Christine, I want to say, um, excellent job on the interview. Seriously. It was really good. Um, love, love listening to it and, uh, and happy to have you on board here, but, uh, related to the, you know, the, the merging books, something else that he said that, uh, that really caught my ear was he said, no work is wasted. And I think this is, I've, I've, I've completely transitioned to a different place in, in this mindset. Like when I first started, um, every word mattered to me in that I didn't want to wait. I was like uber efficient. Like I didn't want to waste any word and anything I wrote, I felt like I had to publish or it was a waste. And, and I, and that's how I, and, and for years I kind of operated from that mindset. And I think I've slowly transitioned into this place. And, and part of this might be me justifying why I don't finish certain projects, but Part of this is like, you know, that work wasn't wasted. Like, even if those words don't make it into a book, it doesn't mean that they weren't worth it. And, and so, um, I, I love that idea of like, you know, he, he talked about like pulling things from years prior and, and, um, and I hear that in music too. Like I hear these guitarists who have been recording riffs on their phone for 10 years and then they go back and they find something and they turn it into a song. And, um, so I love that. No work is wasted. And just because those words don't publish doesn't mean they're a failure. Yeah, we, we've talked about this one before, but in the, the first book that I wrote with James Patterson, uh, there was a dinner scene that we wrote in there. And it was it was one chapter. It was like maybe four or five pages long or so. Um, and, but there were a couple points that had to be communicated, um, which is why we, we created it. But then he, he sent me the pages back and called me. And he's like, is there any way we can, can just say they had dinner? Like those, those three words um, and then take this sentence right here and this sentence and put it, you know, over like he just he grabbed the, the parts that were important and put them somewhere else in the book. Um, but for me, as the, the writers, you know, like I needed to hash that out. I needed to see them sitting around that dinner table. I needed to see that conversation happen to understand who was saying what, who was doing what. Um, but I find myself doing that a lot more now when I go back on my my second and third pass. You know, I, I look for those sections like, is there a reason this entire scene needs to be here or can it be drilled down to three particular words? And, you know, streamline your pacing a little bit and put whatever is important from that scene somewhere else in the book to keep it all moving forward. Um, I, I think that's that's key. And like I read a ton of debut, you know, ARCs and you know, like my editor brain is constantly going, well, why is this paragraph here? You just said this two pages ago. You just reworded it. And it's just slightly different. Um, 
you know, like those are the kind of things that need to come out. And you will learn that, you know, when you work with enough editors, your editor typically will call you out on it, ask you to take it out. And when you hear that enough, you know, it basically works its way into your writing. Um, you'll see this also a lot with the the older writers, the ones that started on typewriters, you know, that are still around because oh, yeah. uh, it wasn't quite so easy to, to hit that delete key back then. Um, you know, I've, I've got a draft of Needful Things sitting next to me. It's the pages from King's typewriter. Um, and, and like I can see what editing was done because he drew lines through it. You know, it's the same thing when I looked at the original draft manuscript Brand Stoker drew lines through the deleted scenes um, so there was much less deleting at that point um, and there was a lot more conscious thought going into what I'm going to type on the physical page um, in today's world take advantage of the hardware you can type a full paragraph you can type two or three pages worth of stuff and go back and wipe it all out once you figure out what it is you want to do but I think the exercise of actually putting it down on the screen or on paper and seeing it helps you flesh out you know that what, what you're really trying to say I, I want to say too like I thought uh um one thing that was really interesting was, you know, the he talked about the length of time it took to write this book, and I think he said seven years. Seven. And um, that is, like, I, I have to commend him for taking that all the way to the finish line because I don't know if I could work on the same book for seven years and actually take it all the way to uh, publication. I'm, I'm curious, uh, like, have, have, like, what's the longest you guys have worked on a project that actually ended up getting published? I'm just, I'm just kind of curious. JD, I'll ask you first. I guess. <laughs> a bunch of people staring at. Yeah, the everyone's screen. just staring. I guess we got <laughs> we're doing JD. the math. Well, here's here. the only one that I've really got like that right now is this this haunted house story that I, I wrote. Um, you know, it's a full book, completely finished. Um, but my editors and my publishers, everybody's pushing me to lean more towards thriller, you know, rather mm. than horror, supernatural type stuff. Um, so I, I've written two books in between that. You know, it's it's basically been sitting on my hard drive. But in that time, I've worked out basically how I can fix that story and I can turn it into a thriller that will work for all these people. Um, and ultimately they're right. Like I'm seeing it in my, my sales numbers. I sell 10 th uh, thrillers for every one horror novel, you know, so it's not just the editors and publishers telling me this, it's the buying public telling me this. So like, there's no reason not to lean into that. Um, I can have a thriller that has horror and supernatural elements to it, but I just have to remember that the thriller is the, the focus there. Um, but you know, I've, I've gone back to it. So I, I rewrote it when I was working on it, went back and wrote another draft, wrote another draft. And I just, I couldn't figure out, I couldn't find feet. I couldn't find an ending to it that worked for me. Um, um, so I put it aside and wrote another book and figured, well, while I'm writing that book, I'll figure it out. But nope, I got to the end of that book and I still hadn't figured it out. So I just put it back and went back and wrote another one. Um, and now I've got it. So when I'm finished with the book that I'm working on now, I'm going to go back and tackle that one. Um, so I'm not very good at just leaving stuff completely unfinished um, out, out there. But, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Yeah, I was gonna say, knowing knowing you the way I know you, I I can't imagine you leaving any project unfinished. Me I was thinking <laughs> the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's and like it's, yeah. The, the length of time is, yeah. When someone says they were working on a book for seven years, I think what we don't necessarily know, and they might not even necessarily know, is like to what level of intensity or to yeah, what level exactly. of consistency, right? Because there's yeah. a difference between showing up at your desk every day for seven years versus like setting something aside for two or three within that span. So it, it, it's, it's more nuanced, I think, than it sounds on the surface. Well, and clearly with some of the other things he talked about, there was a lot of thought and a lot of experience that went into this book, whether it was, you know, he talked about traveling and um, I, maybe was he said he was like in Italy or Germany or something for both, like four yeah, months both. or something. I think Germany for four months. Yeah. Um, you know, he talked about the movies he watched, which he joked about, like 
um, you know, oh, I'm really, I'm, I'm really working, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. And, but those sorts of things definitely influence you, you know, I mean, my, uh, my dead South series that I'm, that I'm working on right now, that's been really deep South for me, deep, deep South, deep South. That's the <laughs> joke going here that I'm, that I'm working on that has been, you know, fairly successful for me. I mean, that all came like a big part of my influence for that was playing a video game called days gone, you know, that was very influential on that. So, um, yeah, so I think that a lot of that sort of stuff goes into that as well. Well, we've talked about this before, you know, like I, I, I do a lot of my plotting while I'm out on a run, you know, like now while I'm sitting in front of my computer thinking about what I'm going to write next. And I think going on a trip or just doing your something different, getting your brain to switch gears, it, like that's when your, you know, your creative side t- tends to come out. Your subconscious continues to work that story and you, you find the answers. Have you, uh, <clears throat> I guess I'll ask JD first, anyone else can chime in if they're curious, but have you ever like gone out of your way to go somewhere just to research for a book or for a part of a book? No, honestly, I'm, I'm terrible at that kind of thing. Um, I, 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 I jump on Google, you know, we've got Google earth. Like I can see everything that I need to see. I can see every building. I can go inside of it. Um, you know, the opposite of that is, you know, Dan Brown, like I talk to him, you know, quite often and like he hops, like he's, I'm going to Estonia, I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And he researches every single thing. He walks those buildings, you know, he looks at the crevices in the walls. Like those are the things that inspire him and bring out, you know, but that, that process takes longer. You know, like I knock out a book in three or four months, you know, he, which I will tease him about, you know, he takes three, four five years sometimes, but you know, you see it in the writing, like it, 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 it's, it's just like anything else in this, you know, you got to figure out your own process, whatever works for you. I, I don't think a guy like that could sit down and just write a book without visiting these places. And if he did, it, it wouldn't feel right. Um, you know, because that's his process. I almost did it for my, I almost did it for my last book. Um, I was really close to riding down to Atlanta to go to the, uh, to the underground mall, which played a pretty big uh, part. And I had been a long time since I've been there, but it was actually closed at the time for renovations, which is the only reason I didn't go. It was like a four, it would have been like a four hour drive, but I was just going to go make a weekend out of it and go and do, cause it played a pretty big role in not my last book, but the book before. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's genre dependent too. I mean, it's yeah. funny you mentioned Dan Brown. Cause I think Joanna's that way too. Like she, yeah, she needs that. that research. Like she needs to be in the place and she writes books that are very similar to, to Dan Brown's in style. So I, I think too, you know, depending on the genre and, and, and the, the type of story you're trying to create, I think that, you know, that can affect whether or not you feel like you have to go there. I mean, uh, I agree with you, JD. Like I, I love going to places like whenever we write stories about New Orleans or set New Orleans, I yeah. feel like going there always gives me something to, to latch onto. But at the same time, like I'm almost done with the first draft of my thriller. And I mean, it's set in Chicago, but I could literally put that anywhere. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't, wouldn't change the story whatsoever. Well, New Orleans is a perfect example of why you need to go. It's, you know, you, you can see pictures of it. You can hear the music. Like, but New Orleans has a particular feel. Like the city itself is alive in a, a certain way. And, and you're not going to get that from watching movies or, or, or reading. Like you physically have to stand on, on Bourbon Street. You know, you, you need to smell Bourbon Street at 10 o'clock at <laughs> smell night. Smell it. <laughs> smell it again at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and, and again at 9 o'clock in the morning when somehow they make all of that go away. Like those are the kind of things that make it authentic that, you know, you would never know if you hadn't been there and and you know all of my books have been domestic you know like I, I i do a lot of traveling but like i when i go it's usually because it's a book tour i don't get to do a whole lot of exploring um the places that i have explored you know like rome and, and paris and places like that like you know that's where you really find these these little things like you know what we just said with new orleans you find that unique element of those particular cities um so there, there's definitely something there 
Yeah. Yeah. If, if you are, if you are going to write a story in New Orleans, then uh, and you can't go. Uh, watch the show Treme that was on HBO. Oh, That's yeah. about the closest it gets. But as JD said, you really need to smell it. Yeah, <laughs> I tend to do um, like I get inspired. So I'll write about places that I've been, but I'm not necessarily going there for the book. So I've been somewhere or I've been somewhere often like Toronto, New York or like easy ones. And then I'll Google Earth them for the things that I forget. But definitely you have the feel of the cities, the memories, the uniqueness, and then you know, all the kind of spatial things and streets and, and just use the Google. <laughs> yeah. That's why I write in the deep South. <laughs> just call right it where that. you live. Makes it easy. <laughs> well, excellent. Uh, great interview, Christine, Anthony, uh, fascinating guy. L- love that. Love, love listening to it and looking forward to, to more from you. Uh, JD, who's up next week? Next week, we've got Jennifer Given. Uh, her latest is a psychological thriller called River Woman, River Demon uh, and released in October. Excellent. Looking forward to that. So if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.